Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hey friends, I have a special guest today. I'm here with Megan Foster of Synergy Dog Sports. And we're gonna talk about something that comes up in both of our worlds frequently. Hey Megan, welcome to the podcast. Hey Sarah, thanks for having me. So Megan is an agility trainer. Um, and I train, you know, I train some agility to my own dogs. I don't teach it to other people so much anymore. I'm more on the problem solving front. And something that comes up in both of our collective groups of students kind of way too often is the phrase, um, my dog hates repetition. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit today and figure out what that means and how we can, how we can avoid needing to use that phrase in our training. Because in truth, dogs kind of shouldn't know what a repetition is or what the concept of repetition is. Um, And so we're going to unpack what people are meaning by that and kind of what we can do about it. So um, Megan, will you just tell everybody a little bit about you and your dogs for a second? Because I think that everyone will understand um, a little bit better when you get to one of your dogs in particular. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, so currently I have three dogs of my own. Uh, Smack is a 12 year old border collie who is, uh, he would, he would normally still be competing if we were allowed to compete right now. Uh, but kind of phasing out and not doing a whole lot of training. I have his younger sister shock who is eight, who doesn't do a lot of competing because she's a little bit, uh, noise sensitive and prefers to be an outdoor demo dog. And I also have a four-year-old Parson Russell Terrier Shrek, who is basically my day job. <laughs> he, uh, I did purchase him from a breeder in hopes of him being my next agility superstar. And um, that still may happen, but he's had his own timeline uh, and teaching me a thing or two about training a more distractible type dog and making sure my training is clean. And um, I think most people would ask, or I do get this question a lot, if he 
can tolerate repetition and that's never been a problem. Yeah. And there are a lot of problems, but <laughs> that's lot. not really one of them. No. Right. And very good at coming back to work and wanting to do it again. Yeah, he is. And I think that that's deliberate. I think that if he were in the hands of a lot of other people, not being able to tolerate repetition would be on the long list of things. Um, and so today we want to talk about actionable steps that you guys can take if you feel like your dog is one of those dogs that can't tolerate repetition. So to start out, I'm just going to go through some of the scenarios where Megan and I see, you know, feel like this pops up. Um, and then we're going to go into some actionable plans for you guys to handle it. So the first situation in which um, we hear my dog can't tolerate repetition is when it's actually the human being trained and not the dog. So when the human is working really hard on a skill, not the dog. So particularly handling skills come to mind. And Megan, I think this is something you talk about a lot when you travel to teach agility seminars because you're a big fan of teaching the humans what they need to know without a dog attached, right? Right. Uh, I really feel it's, it's really difficult for two people to be learning a communication system that's unique to both of them at the same time. So I wouldn't want to be learning a different language from someone who doesn't also know the language. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, that's like a perfect analogy um, because if you, yeah, if you have a foreign language teacher, you need them to be fluent Correct. in that language. Because yeah. they're going to be able to pull you through and tell you and be able to explain things to you that you don't understand and tell you why and understand the big picture and even if you are working with a, an instructor or a coach that is very fluent, it's very difficult for that coach to explain that language to one person who's also trying to explain it to another learner. So it's not just me teaching two p things at once. It's me teaching a human how to speak the language and then that human teaching the dog how to speak the language. And it's, it's messy fast. It gets messy very, very fast. And I think that then you get into this scenario where let's say the person is trying to handle, I'd say like a serpentine and they try it, they mess it up. The dog goes around the jump or whatever, or the dog cuts behind them or, you know, any number of error. A certain situation and then, when I were training together, I mean, like. I, yeah, in fact. <laughs> um, and the person's got to do it again and again and again in order to get it right. And this is where people start to lose their dogs and they start to blame the repetition factor for the loss of their dog's attention. And I think what we're going to argue today is that, you know, two things. First, of course, that probably you should try that serpentine move without the dog until it feels really comfortable. But also um, that we could just pay them every single time, even if they quote unquote did it wrong. Exactly. There's, there is no way that the dog knows what the course is 
so it's impossible when we don't even know how to navigate the sequence, it's impossible for us to say that the dog navigated it wrong. So if we're going through a sequence and they respond to our handling at all, we need to assume that that was the right answer. Yeah, we need to assume that we told them to do that. Right. Right. Especially um, if we want them to think we know what we're doing. Kind of key in agility <laughs> that they think you're a good driver. Right? We love it when they follow us and it's the correct course, but we don't like it so much when they follow us and it's the wrong course, but the dog doesn't know the difference. Right. And I think that's so important to remember. And so what winds up happening or what I see, and you can tell me if it's what you're seeing as well, is that the people try the same thing X number of times before finally reinforcing the dog. And this, I think, produces one of the other scenarios in which people complain of low tolerance for repetition, which is where they're trying to do something, let's say trying to train weave poles, for instance, and the dog is getting it right and getting paid and then getting it right and getting paid. But on like the fourth or fifth rep, the dog changes it. They throw a wild card in there and people blame the repetitions for the dog changing their mind because the dog's got to be saying, well, this can't be right because you've already you've asked me to do it seven times. Right. And I don't think that their th- their thought process is that sophisticated. No, it's did I get a cookie or didn't I? It should be. <laughs> did I get a cookie or didn't I? And you guys, when Megan and I were talking before we recorded, this is a thing that you and I have both witnessed in student dogs and is not something that I've ever seen in one of my own dogs. Right. If I'm reinforcing, my dog's behavior doesn't change. It does not change. It changes when you withhold reinforcement. Changes when I withhold reinforcement and it changes if I change the cue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that next, but um, so here's what I think is happening is people are inadvertently in these human training scenarios, people are training dogs in a negative reinforcement uh, paradigm, which they maybe don't recognize because they withhold reinforcement, withhold reinforcement, withhold reinforcement, and then finally pay. And the dog is used to being asked to do something again and again and again, kind of being that, being that uh, rub that they need, that they want to turn off in order to get the big payout eventually. And then because that's how the dog thinks this works, because the dog doesn't know the difference between you trying to learn a serpentine and them trying to learn a weave pole entry. If you're asking them multiple times, they may alter their behavior seeking that big payout and, and more than that, seeking you ceasing your requests. Yeah. A lot of times if, if, I and I see these training sessions, they get it wrong, they get it wrong, they get it wrong, they get it wrong, they get it right, they get this explosion of cookies, and then they're done, they move on. 
Right. Finally. And over. if that actually works to build behavior, I'm going to argue it didn't work through positive reinforcement. It worked through negative reinforcement because you finally laid off. Right. You finally stopped asking. It was not the explosion of cookies that paid the behavior. It was the fact that you finally let them alone. Right. They don't know why they got paid in a lot of situations, especially if you're like trying to work through a course and they find you, you both finally get it right. And then you just move on to something else on the course. (laughs) (laughs) There is no correlation of those skills. Right. So it's gotta be when the dog kind of, throws a wild card behavior in there and that's a if that's a consistent problem for you you haven't changed anything and then the dog changes the behavior even though they were getting paid that's because of learning history that's because of some learning history elsewhere and Megan and I kind of both think that it does go back to these human training scenarios where we expect the dog to kind of hang out um as well as other scenarios, a lot of people do train leaf poles with you send them 14 times until they finally get it right and then you pay them. You know, if that is the way that you're operating, I'm going to argue that you're not operating in a positive reinforcement paradigm and you are teaching some behaviors that you don't necessarily want to be teaching. Um, okay, so... Megan hinted at it, but another situation in which people might complain of um, low tolerance for repetition is when the human is asking the dog to repeat and they are escalating their cue. So, Megan, you did you do a workshop or a webinar on this recently? I wrote a blog about it. See, I knew something. <laughs> so Did I? <laughs> So Megan wrote a blog about this, which we can link um, for you guys. So talk about what is a cue escalation scenario? Uh, So I think of it in a couple of different ways. Um, It can go back to the human training situations where maybe the handler's learning to do a front cross for the first time. And, but the, but the handler isn't uh, fluent in their ability to do a front cross. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, so the dog's behavior and the human's expectations aren't matching up. So the handler tries different things, different things, different things to try to get the behavior that the handler wants, but isn't really a front cross cue. It's not yep. a finished product, what you're looking for. So the dog never really learns what the correct front cross cue is. It just gets reinforced for following all sorts of other things. And it's maybe not the best example when we're just talking. So I'll also include a uh, weave pole training example because that's easy to see in our mm-hmm. minds. Um, but we're, especially when we're training weave pole entries, uh, we, if the dog does fail, the human response is to make, make it much easier, maybe help the dog with our body to shape the entry and then reinforce. And yep. in our minds, that's great because we, we got the dog help. We got the dog to reinforcement. Everything's going great. But what the dog learned or is in the process of learning is that 
my cue to weave is this extra help, this extra shaping, this body blocking, this um, very sterile handler position that will never, ever happen again. Right. They're actually learning a cue you don't want them to learn. Correct. A physical cue. Because you are escalating your cue to try to, quote unquote, help right. them get it right. Um, and so then we see people, um, again, saying that this is about repetitions when actually it's about on every single repetition, you are escalating your cue. You're becoming louder, bigger, more present right. um, in the dog's face. And so you may see some, you may see some checking out of the dog when you're cue escalating, but then you, you'll see checking out of the dog later when you're trying to not have that big cue. And the dog is saying, I don't know what you want. Right. Because every time they've come back, the question has changed. Right. And so they're, they're starting to, so if, if the question has changed and we, so if the question changed, I would expect to see the answer start to change in the dog. But then when we're not aware that we've changed the question, we're expecting a different answer. Right. So then we're kind of back to that foreign language analogy. <laughs> Always back to that analogy. And so one last kind of situation in which this um, lack of tolerance for repetition tends to pop up that we both feel is worth talking about is that there are certainly going to be varying levels of physical or mental stamina in the dog that you're training. And that is true. But it isn't necessarily about reps, because even if you were doing a different thing every single time, this dog would still wear out on kind of the same timeline. And so I've certainly had dogs that were simply, they simply fatigued earlier than other dogs. And I think one of the biggest reasons that Border Collies are kind of the most popular worldwide agility breed is because they don't fatigue easily. Rather than them being some magical, <laughs> as you and I have talked about, there's a whole lot of things about Border Collies that make them a terrible idea for agility. <laughs> um, it's just that they have enough things that make them a perfect candidate that it outweighs a lot of other <laughs> of those other things. Um, this is one of the areas that makes them a perfect candidate. For is sure. that my Border Collies don't get physically tired easily. Gosh, no, not with the things we're asking them to do in agility. Right. If you've ever, if you ever get a chance to go watch a sheepdog trial, you guys, you will understand why they don't fatigue in agility. The amount of sprinting and stopping and sprinting again that they do in those trials is absolutely outrageous. And it's clear why their physical stamina is so, is so high. Um, but it's not just physical stamina because it's mental stamina too is kind of is a thing. And I, Felix doesn't wear out physically very easily, but he certainly fatigues mentally. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's something I need to pay attention to for sure. And you may have a dog that is both mentally and physically going to wear out quickly. And in which case 
you could, you just have to be careful about asking them for too much. So do you want to talk about Shrek in that light at all? Um, of course. <laughs> because I think as far as energy-wise, Shrek does not tire easily. I... <laughs> I was talking with his breeder recently and she told a story of his like great grandfather going to ground and working under the dirt uh, for seven hours straight. (laughs) I would have been like, Oh God, my dog is gone forever. The earth has swallowed him up. I mean, basically you have those thoughts, but you also run these dogs with collars so you kind of know they're still moving. You know where they are. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh my gosh, well geez, when he disappears into the woods for 45 minutes, I should just count my lucky stars. Um, (laughs) So I I don't feel like he has an energy problem, but absolutely he has a mental energy problem depending on the environment that we're in because he's he's having to work so hard to turn that part of him off that hunting gene that wants to put him out into the woods or under the dirt for seven hours. Yeah, He's having to suppress those hardwired instincts all of the time when working with me. And yeah, I just have to, I have to own it and just be aware of it and know that (laughs) thank goodness I do agility and in the long run I only need like two minutes of his day so you know there's a lot of things that I have to do and be aware of for him mentally and I think that I hope people listening are gonna think about their breed here for a second because That's another reason, I think, you know, that breeds that were meant to work alongside people tend to be more popular choices for sports because they're not suppressing anything in order to work with you. Right. And when I'm thinking of, you know, a sighthound who wants to sprint and they can't. Yes. You know, they can't within an AKC agility course, they can't open up and sprint. I mean, they have to. I mean, right. there's, there's not a border collie on the planet that could out sprint these coursing type dogs. Right. It's so like I don't cross whippets and border collies to make border collies <laughs> faster. Right. So I, I don't think there is an agility course that really would highlight that skill. No. To their there fullest potential. Exactly. And so they're fighting something in order to do this with you. And right. that doesn't mean don't do it with those dogs, you guys. It just means respect how much harder this is for them. Right. Like when, I mean, if we're going to talk about border collies, one of the problems that we tend to have is that they're driven crazy by things that move. Because they want to outrun them, stop them from moving, and herd them back into yep. the corner. So yep. we have to work maybe extra hard on being able to 
work in a class environment or a seminar environment or a two ring trial or to hang out at a trial. Um, yeah. Whereas I didn't have to do any of that with my terrier because he doesn't give a crap about the other dog right. running a dilly. Right. Pros and cons. Exactly. And Definitely. when I'm working, I the amount that I'm fighting against hunting decreases dramatically. Yes. So it's just a trade-off of what I want to put my time into as a trainer with a dog. Completely. And, you know, because there's a lot of breeds that I'm attracted to that I know wouldn't necessarily work in my life because I like to train for obedience and agility and the issues that border collies present in those sports are issues that I'm familiar with. (laughs) So it's kind of, it's easier for me. I always say we just, we return to the pain that we know. (laughs) And because it's much safer than pain that we don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Unless it's that. Um, But also it's off-leash hiking. Border collies are easy to teach off-leash hiking skills to. Um, mm-hmm. generally speaking, you guys, cause I'm going to get emails that are like, well, my border collie and good for you. I'm sorry that I upset you by s- generalizing, but you know, I think that just recognizing how much harder this dog, this might be for your dog in particular is important, both physically and mentally. If you're training a basset hound to do agility or a pug or something like that for whom running and jumping and turning is physically not what they're made for. Um, versus something for whom movement, explosive movement, jumping, running is cheap, right? You just have to kind of work that in. And there's almost a math problem here somewhere. <laughs> where you just kind of go, <laughs> my dog's got this much mental and physical stamina. So therefore I can do this much training. Right. There's a direct correlation there for sure. I think so in that, in what we observe. So let's dive into what we actually do about it. Um, We're going to kind of go back down this list, you guys, and talk about solutions. Um, You know that I believe really strongly and not just pontificating about everything that's wrong (laughs) and instead talking about real solutions. Um, So in those scenarios where we're training humans and also trying to expect dogs to learn. So in those scenarios where a person who is not fluent in a language is teaching somebody else the language, um, I know number one for you, Megan, is to actually put the dog away and work on the handling by yourself without the dog. But I do think that there's more that we can do there. So give me your thoughts and you can start with the put the dog away thoughts <laughs> for sure. I mean, at the, at the very least. So when I'm teaching a brand new group of handlers, I try really hard to just help them through and learn those mechanics before I even tell them what it is they're doing. So I can kind of fall when I do finally get to teaching them about a front cross, it's already kind of pre-installed. Ah. Okay, so that that's a little bit maybe more if I'm talking to other agility instructors out there, you can kind of do that. But if I'm working with you, I'm going to get and I, I can go, all right, 
she knows how to do a front cross. We're good. I'm going to give you a shot at it. I'm not going to insist that you practice everything for 20 minutes without the dog all of the time, but I'm going to try to take care of myself as a learner the same way I do with a dog. So if I try it once and it goes a little wonky, I'm going to make sure the dog gets paid and I'm going to try it again because I, if I'm unsure, think of how we do it with the dogs. Do, was it really, did we just misunderstand it? Did we just make a human error? So I'm going to give myself one more chance and I'm going to pay the dog no matter what. And then if I still don't have it, I'm going to set the dog aside and try to figure it out without them. I'm just going to use the same rule that I apply to my dog training to my human training. Yeah. So to clarify, you, you know, ideally, obviously these people would have kind of prerequisite skills before they start to run a sequence. And so let's say you're, we're in a teacher student scenario, which we are often you teaching me handling and I supposedly have prerequisite skills. (laughs) And so then you will let me try the sequence. I try the sequence. I botch it. I'm good about still paying my dog. So I give him the toy and then we're, you know, we're playing and then I probably station him or put him on a down. And then I look at you and I go, okay, what? (laughs) And if it's just like one little stupid thing I did, you point it out. Or not. And then I usually do walk it again. Like I usually do go through a motion that you just told me to do. Um, And then I'll try it again. But if I botch it again with the dog, you don't allow that third time. And I think we all need to keep that rule true for ourselves when we're training without an instructor. Right. Because if you knew how to do it, you would have done it. Hey, that's interesting. (laughs) That seems like something I say about dogs all the time, which is, how do you know they can't do it? They're not doing it. (laughs) I have to, if I, especially if I'm, I'm trying to teach a handler something, I don't want them, I don't want them to be the type of handler that just rapid fire offers me behavior without letting me get a word in. Yes, I don't want that. That student is hard to work with the ones that they get it wrong and they roll right into it again without stopping and asking for help. And they kind of keep repeating the same mistake over and over. I don't want, so I don't want that dog. I also don't want that human learner, but I also don't want the human learner to just give up either. I need my human learner to enjoy repetition if I expect them to be able to pass that trait on to their dog. I think that's so, that's such a smart, um, in fact, that's such a smart parallel that I just wrote it down and we're going to record something else (laughs) because it's so true when you have kind of a reactive handler who is like, Oh, let me just try it again. I'll try it again. I'll try it again. Um, You can certainly get, stuck in yeah these dogs that are like okay we're still doing this and it's not that the dog knows that you're doing the exact same thing again no it's that you you're doing it again and for whatever reason you finally stopped and paid them for something 
Exactly. And so for me, I'm saying, okay, the two actionable steps we can take is number one, just pay the dog every single time. Just trust that if the dog went off course or missed an obstacle or whatever, that they were following your handling and you always need to reinforce them for following your handling always. So that's kind of piece number one is just reinforce them every single time and reinforce adequately enough. Yeah, not which, a, you know, for, not a screw up cookie, you guys. <laughs> not a screw up cookie. It is not you, you know, we all did it wrong. Here's a cookie. It is a true reinforcement, which is why, you know, if it's a toy for me, toys are less efficient than food if you're going to be generous enough with your toys. And so if it's a ball and a rope for Felix, which it often is in handling because it's his favorite thing and it's what allows him to let me learn. Right. So, and I feel like I owe it to him. Like, I'm like, listen, I know I'm a bumbling idiot out here. So here's your ball and a rope, which is your crack. Um, But if I'm using the ball and a rope, I got to be generous. We got to have a legitimate play moment. And then I have to allow him to voluntarily give me the ball back for the next repetition. And we're going to get into that in a minute um, as far as that voluntary return for the next rep. But the two things we can do about these human training scenarios are, number one, break it down for yourself as the human learner, just like you would for a dog. And number two, reinforce heavily, handsomely, often. Yes. And in these scenarios where the dog is changing the behavior they're offering just because you're asking them again, which is about their learning history, I'm going to say what we can do about it is we can avoid that negative reinforcement paradigm where we ask, 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 ask. Finally, they get it right. Finally, we pay them. Finally, we move on. And then we need to examine, we need to examine all of our training and make sure that that's not the paradigm that we're living in. And then it comes back to what I just said. How do you know they can't do it? Because they're not doing it. So recognize that if you're, if you ask them to do something twice and they don't do it twice, they're, they're not doing that on purpose. You guys, they're doing what they know. They're showing you what they know. And the dog never lies about what they know. And the same goes for the people. I don't don't believe any of my students come to class and get it wrong on purpose. No, because it's yucky to get it wrong. Nobody likes that. Right. I don't think anyone. You come in and you know it's wrong. (laughs) You don't like it. Right. I mean, most most of my students are telling me, yeah, yeah, I know it was wrong. Okay, fine. Let's explore that. Let's explore what you do know. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, you and I talked about this in um, the other podcast we did, the Better Agility Training podcast, where we talked about also um, respecting your human students in agility enough to give them more information than you were late. Yes. Um, right. Or more information than, well, you, you know, you were late or you were out of position or don't tell them what was wrong, you guys. Chances are they felt what was wrong. They knew that something was wrong. They don't know how to be right, which is why they weren't right. 
which is why I love learning handling with you, Megan, because I know that I did it wrong when I do it wrong. I just don't always know how to access the right answer. And you are always able to step in and say, well, this is how you access the right answer. Exactly. I mean, so for me, thank you, by the way, I enjoy having you as a student. <laughs> we have a good time. It, it should be that the, the dog is kind of the, we, if we're doing it well, we can use the dog as a translator if it was right or not and what needs yeah. to change. And if the person observing helping you is really good at uh, translating the dog's response into what that might mean about what the handler just asked, how the handler gave a cue, then it's a lot easier to zone in on what to change. So it, it doesn't matter to me. Everything is right because the dog, as long as the dog is responding, it's all information and, and we can shape the, the human's next repetition based on the dog's response. Does that make sense? It really does. And I just thought of something else, which is that we could say about our human learners that some of us are averse to repetitions too. Right. But I'm going to say that the repetitions that I'm averse to are the ones where I'm not getting the appropriate feedback on how to do it right. And also it has to do with my fatigue as well. For sure. So I can only run a sequence so many times in a row before I need to take a break. And I need to respect that about myself because my patience level starts to go down as my fatigue level starts to go up. And if an instructor is, I've been in scenarios, I am remembering one in particular, agility seminar, and it was literally the first issue I had, had in the seminar. Um, because my, my dog and I were a little bit, we were kind of put in the wrong day, essentially. So the courses were pretty easy for us, but it was great. You know, there's value in that too. We were having a great time. We ran into a problem finally. But the instructor couldn't fix it for me. Like she couldn't yeah. say Do this and then have me get it right. And I, I gave up. Yeah. No. After a few repetitions. And so then would my dog say... My human can't handle repetition. Right. Or or would my dog say, that was an unfair learning scenario for my human. And it's okay that she needed to take a break. Yeah, you know, the more the more we talk about this, I'm thinking that that the my dog doesn't like repetition is just the label that we use to describe all these problems that we're having, but the, the, it really, like you said in the beginning, it doesn't have anything to do with repetition. <laughs> right. It wasn't about how many reps it was about, because I'm going to say if the scenario had been different and I actually did take that scenario to my normal coach, my usual coach who was able to tell me exactly what I was doing wrong and how to fix it. And then I did do it a bunch of times, Megan, so that I could be fluent in it. And I was not averse to doing all those reps because I was getting it right, getting positive reinforcement each time. And 
then I, so in that scenario, I was not averse to repetition. Right. So the difference was, was probably the difference was good instruction, clear instruction, positive reinforcement each rep. Exactly. And it was built upon uh, success, right? So yeah. when I break it down for humans, I take away the speed, I take away um, the length of the sequence. So all the same things that I would do for my dog, if I was trying to get him back to a success point, I want to do for the human learners. Absolutely. Gosh, it's all the same, isn't it? And when I go and teach seminars, the handlers that don't want to leave, the handlers that are having a bad time, they're not getting it. Those are the ones that want to end their session early. Yeah. Right? They're like, and you get that feeling like they don't want to be here anymore because sometimes it does happen. Sometimes I'm teach. I've been in those moments where I'm teaching and I don't know where their success point is. And yeah, it's hard, but I do feel um, though, like maybe their dog is totally in it and the dog is fine to repeat, but I can feel the human's desire to be there and work with me leave. And it's, oh, it's crushing. Cause it, oh, I've felt it too. It's very difficult. You guys have some respect for people who travel and teach because oh gosh, um, ridiculously, it's hard sometimes. to be, you're literally dropped into a group of people that you have no learning history with. They have no learning history with you. And it's like sink or swim. And the people who do it well, um, I, it's like a special talent. It's like an extra talent. <laughs> and I don't know you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's no like school in which you learn how to do this well that I'm aware of, because if there is a school for that, you guys let me know, because I'll sign up. Um, you know, because it is hard. Um, okay, so I think that we've covered the human training scenarios, we've covered, you know, when the dog is trying new behaviors, that's just about having respect for both learners in the in the exact same scenario and saying that both of you are owed clear instruction and both of you are owed a high rate of reinforcement. Um, so what about these Q escalation scenarios? Is there more to it than just get fluent on your own cues? Know exactly what your cues are? In the moment, no. But... You do need to be filming your training sessions and reviewing those training sessions. Yeah. A lot of times uh, we don't know that we've done the cue escalation. Uh, for example, I was filming, uh, I keep going back to front crosses, but only because that's what I just recently did for my classroom. Um, and Shrek got a refusal on one of the jumps. I mm -hmm. uh, And when I reviewed, then I did it again and I got him over the jump. And then when I reviewed the video, when he did get the refusal, he, he had committed to the jump. And then as I started to move away, he broke commitment to the jump, but there was nothing wrong in the way that I cued. And okay. you know, I know that logically in that moment, the very next repetition that I did, I went closer to the jump. I waited longer. I didn't give the same cue. So while he didn't take the jump, it he didn't learn to keep commitment even when I'm leaving. 
he learned that yeah, so you did you escalated the queue that's exactly what we're talking about exactly yeah. so he he was like oh okay i go with mom when she leaves and i take the jump when she stays with me and it was very subtle i mean i had to go frame by frame and go oh geez and and i know this i understand mm-hmm. fallout um, that could happen by doing this and it was just the human thing to do. But now I know. So then when I go back and do that sequence again, instead of going closer, staying longer, I'm going to pre-place the reward to make sure that Shrek can respond to the cue that I want to give in the long run. Yeah, I think you know, that a lot of our students feel intimidated by videoing and video review. Yes. And also feel maybe like, ugh, that's a lot of work. And understand, though, you guys, that you and I, Megan and I, are videoing basically everything. I pretty much don't train without video anymore. Except for the random stupid training it's very rare (laughs) yeah it'll happen it'll happen on a rare occasion but generally speaking i video everything and then hey guys guess what it doesn't help to just review it to or to just video it then i review it yeah and take notes and i can't tell you how much better it has made me as a trainer basically i mean i harp on it all the time but the reason i do is because no other single thing has made me better than this has. Because I'm able to, like you said, in the moment, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. You have to look at it later and go, oh, I escalated my cue there. I need to go back to the drawing board and make sure he understands the real cue that I'm going to give in a trial. Because in a trial, I cannot babysit him and hold his hand all the way to that jump and still get where I need to go. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, mine is like classically um, shaping weave pull entries. Like I have to sit my ass in a chair to train weave pulls to keep me, to keep myself from shaping those entries because it is so positively reinforcing for us when they get it right, that we do whatever behaviors we need to do to get them to get it right. A hundred percent. Like I put, I put a target on the ground for myself. Yeah. I do it all the time. I go, this is where you're standing, Sarah. (laughs) No, no, no. It, um, yeah, it's just so human of us and we don't even know it's happening and we're going, it, it all kind of works out because when we're talking about, uh, one of the fixes of, of fatigue later, you'll actually find out that you have way more time for reviewing your videos and taking notes when you're yes. training a little bit less for less time. And I mean, that is so real, Megan. I spend so much more time setting up and reviewing and taking notes than I do actually training dogs now. Short sessions with such a high rate of success. Yeah. And the progress just happens and you can see it and track it with a little bit of video review. You totally can. And it's just, it's honestly, it's so much more fun too, because 
you're never, you're not like having this frustration in the session. Right. So let's talk about that. How do we deal with these varying levels of fatigue? How are we able to be here for the learner that we have in front of us? And it's all about actually your lemonade conference topic, which I believe I told you you should be what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, Which is training in loops. So explain that a little bit. Right. Training in loops. So I think um, most of us understand or have heard loopy agility or loopy training in general. Um, so yeah, and I'm going to credit uh, Alexander Carland with the phrase "loopy training." I think yeah, and then yeah. A, a lot of people are talking about training in loops, loopy training. Hannah Brannigan's new shirt, which we both own, yes, yeah, is the training in loops shirt. <laughs> so brilliant. bare bones, yeah. What is it? Um, what is it? That's a great question. I have to explain. <laughs> Um, I know what it is conceptually, but putting it into words, that's, that's great. Basically. So it's essentially that you've got, you've got your starting point. Right. You have a start point and how you're going to set up for the. Right. So you've got your start point, you've got your behavior, and then you've got your reinforcer. Right. And keeping every, and no extra happenings (laughs) in between those. No extra happenings in your loop because then from your reinforcer, you go right back to your starting point is basically that's the loop part is that we've got, and if we want to get technical, we're talking antecedent behavior consequence, right? So your starting point is your antecedent. It goes into your behavior, which is whatever your agenda behavior is. And then consequences, whatever your reinforcer is and keeping the loop closed. So making sure that the consequence drives the dog straight back to the antecedent for the next rep. To me, that's that's what a loop is. But give me, if you can, because I am springing this on Megan a little bit, you guys, <laughs> give me an example in real life. Because I just watched a really nice uh, loopy training session with you and Shrek in which uh, you were training weave poles. Oh. So you sent him in, you don't have to use that example. So you sent him into the poles, reinforced, took him back to your station and your station is your starting point. So you kind of used a transport in there. Yeah. So a lot of times when we're training, say an obstacle, we have the same starting point that we're after. So if I can use a station uh, to kind of anchor the dog there, Mm -hmm. It means that I'm going to be starting from the same place every time. So I'm kind of just avoiding some cue escalation from the get-go or cue change uh, because the station makes sure that I'm starting from the same place. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of singles out the behavior that I'm asking for. It sets the scene because the station is going to be closest to the obstacle that I'm looking to do, like the weave poles. So everything about it just kind of screams, do the weave poles. And so I can be doing whatever I want to be doing, whether it's uh, not helping the dog with my motion or running really fast past the weave poles, my cue can kind of be not as relevant because I've set the stage for weave poles to happen. So that's going to be the very beginning of the loop. Then the weave poles happen, 
And then however I'm going to reinforce the dog for the weave poles, it can be toss food, toss toy, uh, take the toy or take the food from my hand, or maybe even a pre-placed reward. So dog weaves, I use a marker cue to signal they can collect reinforcement, they collect it, and then all the way from the time that they've collected it back to the starting point. All of that needs to be seamless. Yeah, so an example of it not being seamless, you guys, would be you throw a meatball in the grass because the dog completed the weave poles, the dog eats the meatball and then sniffs or runs to check to see if there's a squirrel in the bush before coming back. Or or like turns around and takes the weave poles again. Or Ah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that to me is the same problem. It is the same problem because the dog, because the loop is broken. So any situation in which the loop is broken. um, And I'm going to share you guys some videos in Patreon of loopy training for agility. So you guys can definitely see what we're talking about. But the core point for these dogs of fatigue easily. So like, what are we talking about? Or maybe don't fatigue easily, but... um, we need to be aware of their mental or physical fatigue is that if you allow the dog to re-engage the loop um, or to engage the loop to begin with, then you're building consent into the training in and of itself. And you will be able to notice little breaks in the loop that are telling you that the fatigue is starting to way in. So for instance, if I send the dog for the weave poles, I throw a reinforcer, uh, maybe it's a toy reinforcer and the dog takes a lap before bringing the reinforcer back. That's going to be a little break in the loop that even if the, even though the dog brought the thing back, I probably need to give them a break because they took that lap, which is telling me there's a tiny bit of reluctance to re-engage the loop, right? Yes. I mean, I would also add that you have to kind of know how your dog normally brings the toy back. Absolutely. That example, it's a, it's a very, it's trained, a clean, straight return. So depending, little loops don't bug me as much with Shrek. Sometimes if he catches it on the fly, he just doesn't stop and so he just kind of loops back but if he has to actually dig into the grass to get it it should be a pretty straight return so you just kind of have to know what's normal um for for their reinforcement right and i think knowing what's normal may again go back to video review so i had a very specific session um years ago when felix was young where I was teaching him the teeter and the teeter has been a tough obstacle for him. Um, like it is for a lot of dogs. Um, it's, it's just, I think inherently not easy. Um, and he, I was doing this great session and I was feeding him in position on the teeter and then I was tossing a treat away and then he was returning, um, to my side for the next repetition. And I had this nice clean loop set up and in one of the reps, he just sniffed a second after eating the throne reinforcer. And then came, and literally it was 
he dropped his head is all right. like he didn't sniff. He ate it, dropped his head, then returned. And the rest of the session was crap. Yeah. He gave me weird behaviors like that thing we're talking about. He gave me random other behaviors. He, um, he did all kinds of stuff and I didn't, and I finally, you know, after a couple of weird things, I stopped, but then on the video review, I caught that little nose drop and I went, Oh, he told me right then he couldn't keep doing this. Right. And I missed it. So subtle. So subtle. And so now I'm very attentive to those subtle cues from him because of video review. And now I can stop before things fall apart. Yeah, that's the goal. The goal is not to fatigue the dog, because if they learn every single time I do this, I'm going to be mentally or physically exhausted. Oof. They stop wanting to do it. They stop wanting to do it. And I mean, they're, they're going to turn to those behaviors that get them out of it fast. Yeah. Sooner. Every single time. Sooner. They're going to go, well, you know what makes her quit every time? When I leave to sniff. Works like yep. harm. <laughs> and we don't want to put them in that position. We don't want them to be in a position of hinting at us that they're over it. We don't want to put you. Right? Like we <laughs> Forget about them for a second. We don't want to put our humans in that position because then no one is having no. time. I, right. Like if you've got, if you've ever been in a seminar, Megan, where you've got a person in front of you and like, they're looking away and oh my God, they might even pick up their phone and glance at it. And they're like, you know, they're giving you all of these. I wish I wasn't here. They're cueing me to Cue. shut up. They're cueing you to shut up and their learning history informs how they do that. Yeah. And you don't know anything about them or their learning history. So now you're in this situation where you've got to read all of those things all at once. And I think dog trainers kind of find themselves in that position too sometimes. And I mean, dog trainers, as in you guys listening to this podcast, trying to figure out why your dog's checking out in the backyard, right? You get in a situation where you are forced to see all of these little subtleties that are hard for you to see because you're kind of, you know, I, you know, not trained in it or you haven't trained hundreds of dogs or whatever video review and, and, and aiming to keep those loops tight will help you to see it so that you aren't in that scenario where you're trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean that the dog stopped and sniffed or what does it mean that the dog, you know, looked around before they came back for the next rep? Right. And not necessarily trying to solve it in that moment. So keeping the sessions much shorter. Uh, I've been really mm -hmm. hard about setting a timer, mm -hmm. especially for my clients that this is a little bit newer, trying to observe those extra behaviors within the loop. Yeah. Set a timer. Set a timer. Two minutes, be done, review it and see if you can do something better next time. Absolutely. And I, two minutes, usually you guys is the amount the dog can give you. That is pretty universal that most dogs are going to tap out, start to give some weirdness at two minutes. Especially um, something really fat, like going back to like training two by twos, 
oh my, do you know how many repetitions you can do in two minutes? I mean, it's so many volumes from circling around and resetting every time. Um, your dog will definitely start to go, when does this end? Because anybody would, right? And I do. <laughs> when does this end? So true. Um, so setting a timer, paying attention to that loop, paying attention to your dog's subtle opt-out signals. I think that's how we can combat the the natural normal fatigue that is going to be attached to every single learner. You just need to figure out what it is for your learner. Yeah. I think that really handles that step for us. And it's going to be potentially different depending on what you're training and where you're training it, depending, like I said, Shrek yeah. has to work so much harder when he's outdoors. Uh, so then asking for a, a behavior that's also really taxing, whether that's mm -hmm. physically or mentally, on top of what he's already having to deal with in the environment. It, it, it adds up really quickly. Well, it really does. And so I think, um, I think what we can conclude here is that dog training is laden with repetition by its nature. If you don't do reps of positive reinforcement, then you are not building a reinforcement history for these behaviors that you're trying to train. You won't get away without doing reps. Exactly. So they're all going to tolerate reps to some degree and you can help them to not only tolerate, but just enjoy the process by setting both of you up for success, paying attention to those loops, being fluent in your cues and, you know, using it, using some technology like a timer and some video review um, to help to make sure that you are not pushing them to their fatigue point or over it. Yeah. Yeah. So Megan, this has been an awesome conversation. Can you fill everybody in on where they can contact you um, and also what you've got coming up? I mentioned your lemonade conference talk, but um, I'm sure you've got some other things going on. So have at it. All right. Uh, so I'm on Facebook. You can find me there. You can friend request me on my personal page. That's totally cool. Uh, I also have a training group, Synergy Dog Sports Training Group. That's on Facebook. It's public and open to everyone. And I've been doing a lot of Facebook live chats there recently. And I'm also on Instagram, Synergy Dogs. And I have a website, SynergyDogSports.com. And you can find the blog that was mentioned a couple of times here and all of my online classes and events and things that I'm offering is on the website uh, because in addition to the Lemonade Conference coming up the end of May, I am also starting to teach six-week courses for the Finzi Dog Sports Academy in addition to the webinars and workshops that I'm kind of already have on the schedule and some of those things agility handler mechanics. So getting yourself fluent. <laughs> um, some mindset training skills classes are things that I'm, I'm looking forward to teaching. Um, so, so that's all happening. 
I think I have a weave pull workshop coming up in June. Um, jumping workshop. So much stuff. Uh, but it's all on my website and uh, feel free to reach out if you have any questions about anything. And definitely join the training group on Facebook, the Synergy Dog Sports Training Group, because um, I'm in it. I'm really enjoying it. And the Facebook lives have been really informative and fun. And I'm just liking, you know, the concept of a group of people trying to train agility in a loopy, smart, highly reinforcing way for everyone involved. Um, it's a good place to be. So I will link all of that in the show notes for you guys. And Megan, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 